Did you know the U.S. is the 12th most obese nation and one in three kids is overweight or obese? Welcome to Kids Can, Healthy Kids, Better World, a podcast from Action for Healthy Kids. Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the brand new podcast series, Kids Can, presented by Action for Healthy Kids a show highlighting everyday issues children face today and featuring conversations that give you advice on how you can help the kids in your life. I'm your host, Rob Bisegli. For the first episode, I will be sitting down with Dr. David Satcher, the 16th Surgeon General of the United States, former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and founding board chair of Action for Healthy Kids. He's here today to tell us a bit about his story, discuss why so many children struggle with poor health in the U.S. and the world today, and help each of us understand what we can do about these challenging issues. Uh, hello, Dr. Satcher. How are you today? Fine, Rob. How are you? Uh, welcome to our podcast. It's really just a thrill to have you with us. Well, I'm delighted to be with you. You probably know what I'm about to say, but I was thinking about our discussion today and I was looking at your report from uh, when you were Surgeon General, your call to action to prevent and decrease overweight and obesity. And I realized that that, this, that report this year is 20 years old. Goodness. That's an interesting thing. And Action for Healthy Kids, of course, was, was born just shortly thereafter with you as our founding board chair. So, you know, uh, in one more year, just next year, we will be uh, 20 years old as well. My goodness. It doesn't seem like it's been that long, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking if you have any recollections from back in those days of, you know, the, the release of the report, your, your, you know, the end of your term as Surgeon General and the creation of Action for Healthy Kids, especially as it, you know, especially with respect to obesity and overweight. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what led to our meeting because after the report came out, there were certain people who were excited about the opportunity for it to become a factor in reducing overweight and obesity, especially among children. And I think that led us to meeting with Action for Healthy Kids. And it took off from there. As you know, I became head of the board of Action for Healthy Kids. And later on, of course, we set up uh, the other the foundation, Gen Youth Foundation. So they all connected, interconnected. Yeah, there's so much work that has uh, gone on and gone into this issue over all of those years. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about it. We're we're proud, you know, to be entering our 20th year next year. So I, I think we've done a lot and we've got a lot of work to do, I, I believe. Yeah, well, you should be proud. It's been a great, um, great 20 years. So I'll move on to our first uh, issue for you, Dr. Satcher, which is, you know, the premise of this podcast and really all of the work of Action for Healthy Kids, for that matter, is that our childhood experiences and the adults who care for us have a transformative impact on our lives. In your book, you write about suffering from whooping cough and related pneumonia as a child. And I can only imagine what that was like as a parent. My youngest daughter uh, had a mild bout of whooping cough when she was a toddler. And I remember it being a really jarring experience because it was, it was hard for her to breathe uh, one of those nights. Thankfully, my wife knew exactly what to do. So that was great. Uh, but what do you remember about your experience? Can you tell us a little bit about it? 
Well, you know, as you get older, sometimes your memory gets sort of mixed up with the memory of those around you. Like I've heard my mother tell this story so many times until I imagine some of the things that I'm saying I remember. I don't remember as well as uh, I remember what she said. But I, I do remember struggling to breathe. I will always uh, remember whooping cough as a disease in which you really struggle to get your ne next breath. <laughs> Long breaths like that and then breathing. But uh, my mother also described what it was like to take care of a child that was having trouble breathing. So all of that has sort of come together in my mind over the years. But I, very early on, I, it became clear to me that children need help in terms of their health and health care. Children need caring. They need help. And they can be helpless in the face of a disease like whooping cough. And their parents can be helpless. But I must admit, my parents never gave up, even though Dr. Jackson, who was a physician, thought that they should in the sense that he didn't think I was going to survive. They never, never accepted that. Yeah. And they fought all the way until I recovered. I remember in your book, you write about Dr. Jackson and about your parents for that matter. in those years, right after you recovered, what do you remember about that in those years? And you no, know, how did that experience impact your life? You think going forward? Well, so a couple of things about that one, because my parents, especially my mother, talked about the experience so much, and especially about Dr. Jackson and what he said and what he did, I think I, 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 I developed this strong desire to meet Dr. Jackson. I, I, and so they said, okay, uh, for your fifth birthday, we're going to take you to town to meet Dr. Jackson. We lived on a farm way outside of the city. So I look forward to that. And uh, never met him. He, he died that year. But I remembered everything that was said about him and what he did and how he did it and things like that. So by the time I was five years old, when I was supposed to meet Dr. Jackson, I was saying, I'm going to be a doctor just like Dr. Jackson. So that's sort of the way that happened. Yeah, yeah. It, it, this reminds me, uh, makes me think of an, another issue. You know, black children and children of color to this day continue to experience unequal access to healthcare and related services. Based on what you learned through your experience as a child and what you've learned through all of the positions of leadership in public health that you've had, um, what do you believe needs to be done someday to achieve that health equity that we all really yearn for, that we at Action for Healthy Kids work for, and that you've been working for and advocating for most of your professional life? Well, uh, it's a great question because I, I believe the first issue has to be access to health care. And I think in this country, we owe it to everybody to have access to health care. And we don't have that. Access is often related to your ability to pay. And since we are so different economically and therefore socioeconomically, there are people who don't have access. And usually those people wait until the last minute until they find a way to an emergency room somewhere. I don't mean to, to simplify this. I mean, I think our health system is complicated, but I think we can do better as a nation. And I think we can do better 
more socioeconomically. I think we can create a health system in which people are seen earlier, and therefore the kind of care that they need is different. Now, obviously, we're dealing with something now with COVID-19. And I think the lesson with COVID-19 is that somehow we have to develop a relationship with people so that we are able to intervene much earlier than what we are doing with many cases of COVID-19. It doesn't matter who to blame, uh, who's to blame, or what have you. What matters is that we've got to engage with people at the point of disparities in health, at the point of um, those people who have more likelihood of hypertension, uh, obesity, heart disease. We need a health system that's working on the front line to prevent disease, but also to promote health. And we've got to, the only way we're going to get there, of course, is we have to reward people for providing that. And our system to date doesn't reward providers for keeping people healthy. We reward them for treating people when they're sick. Now, I think with COVID-19, more than anything I have seen in my career, it's very clear that um, it's very expensive, costly, not to provide more emphasis on health promotion and disease prevention. Because if we don't provide it, then it means that later on, we've got to, it's going to cost much more to treat diseases in their later stages. Yeah. It makes me think of another issue, too, where we've been mostly talking about physical health and well-being. But we at Action for the Kids, of course, we work with schools and parents all over the country. And now as schools reopen and as students enter school again, mental health issues are becoming really prominent for kids, especially in this kind of environment. So I would guess that you feel the same way about mental health issues as you do about physical health issues, or, or how do you view them today, especially with respect to students as they're entering this kind of environment? Well, as you know, I, I was able to uh, produce the first Surgeon General's report on mental health. And you know, the basis for that, of course, goes back to earlier than medical school and then experiences that I had in medical school. But certainly, mental health is critical to overall health and well-being. We say that in the report. Uh, we've seen it throughout a lifetime of medical practice. If we are not targeting mental health and treating it as early as possible, then we're going we're gonna to have more physical health. We're going to have more costs in our health system because the mental health impacts all health. So there is no health without mental health. That's what we said in the report. So I just think the attitude that has been developed about mental health and sometimes a very negative attitude has led to a situation where, as we used to say, there are more people in the Los Angeles County Jail with mental illness than there are in mental institutions. And that was true. You know, I said that when I was working out there and we saw a lot of mental health problems. But without question, the failure to identify and treat mental illness and to treat it as early as possible uh, contributes significantly to violence and crime and all of the other issues related to mental illness that we see. We're not identifying and treating it early. We're often waiting until very late before we view it as a crime. So 
as opposed to an illness that needs to be treated. Right. I'm saying that because I think we, we're beginning to agree on that and to move forward in terms of uh, early identification and treatment of mental disorders. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned COVID-19 a moment ago, and of course, COVID-19 continues to be a major challenge for schools and for parents and other caregivers. And many are struggling to balance physical health and mental health for their kids. Do you have any advice uh, that you would give to school leaders, parents, and caregivers when it comes to addressing the pandemic right in this moment where we're experiencing another significant uptick, especially in certain parts of the country? So what kind of advice would you give to folks as kids go back to school? Well, I think kids need to know as much as they can about COVID-19, but in general, about mental disorders as well as physical disorders. Uh, COVID-19 is something that attacks at the point of our vulnerabilities. Now, another way I think of saying that is that People say, well, why is it that African-Americans have, are more likely to have COVID-19 than other populations like whites, for example? And my response to that has been COVID-19 attacks us at the level of our vulnerabilities. So if you're more likely to have hypertension, obesity, and other diseases like that, then it means that you're easier to attack with a virus like COVID-19. So we really have to begin by dealing with the disparities in health that we face every day. And then I think we will probably have less COVID-19 in different populations. It's not going to be the same, but there are a lot of ways we can attack early and and there are ways in which we can prevent by attacking early. Yeah. One of the issues that we're facing today, of course, is around the vaccine and reluctance in certain communities and with certain populations, sometimes because of a lack of trust in our government. So what's your view on the perception and and distrust that some folks feel when it comes to the vaccine? Well, first, there are different reasons that people distrust the uh, vaccine and the system that, that administers it. And I think we have to be aware of that, that People have different reasons for not trusting. Some people don't trust it because they just don't understand it. And if you tell them that we were able to develop this vaccine in a very short period of time, much faster than usual, they immediately think, well, there's something wrong with this vaccine. So I don't want to be in line for it. So that's one source of of misunderstanding and Fear about the vaccine. The other thing, of course, is that the vaccine is targeted to a disease that is different from anything we have seen without question the severity of COVID-19 and the rapidity with which it develops and the way in which it attacks each of us differently. Again, targeting our areas of vulnerability, whether it's in terms of our mental health or physical health, what have you, it makes it a little bit more difficult to understand. Now, as you probably know, when I went to the CDC as director in 1993, of course, the issue had been the Tuskegee study. Not many people knew much about it. So we had a commission of, I think, about 100 people 
to really look intensely at the Tuskegee study. What actually happened? How did it happen? What resulted? And so when that commission finished its work, it presented to me a report about the Tuskegee study. And it was, it was so amazing until that very night, I was in my office and I called uh, Secretary Shalala in Washington and the two of us called President Clinton and uh, to tell him about this report and the fact that we thought it's the kind of thing that needed a presidential apology. But I think up until that time, many people had felt that it couldn't have happened and we don't believe that happened. And what our commission found was that all of the things that we dreaded believing had happened in terms of the Tuskegee study. There were, in fact, over 400 Black men who were enrolled and thinking they were being treated for syphilis when they were not being treated at all. These things happen. And so first we have to acknowledge that they happen. And then we have to, uh, we have to say that we're sorry and we're going to develop a strategy for making sure that it doesn't happen again. That's basically, and that's what President Clinton, in essence, said in uh, May of 1997 when he officially apologized for the Tuskegee study on behalf of the American people. You may argue that an apology doesn't necessarily change things, but an apology is about the future, and it's about a commitment to a different future than the past. And that's what was done on that day when the apology was made. It was a commitment that at the highest level of government in the United States, we made a commitment that never again would anything like this happen. It's not easy to make that kind of commitment because many of us are not gonna be around, but hopefully those who read history will know that there was a time in which we made a commitment as a nation to never allow something like that to happen again when it comes to the health system in this country. Easier said than done, but very important that it be said and that we work toward that. President Clinton also said on that day that going forward, people who received funding from the federal government to conduct research would have to show a working relationship with the community. In other words, in the future, you couldn't you go out and say, we have money, we're doing this research, we're from the government and we're here to help. No, you had to show what was going to be done and, and the role of the community in it. And I'm not pretending that I think the system is perfect. I know it's not. But I think that commitment puts a different tone on the relationship between the community and the government. Uh, in fact, on that day, what we said was, uh, that in the future, when the government conducts a program of research related to a community, that community had to be involved in developing the program and monitoring it. Yeah, it was a remarkable moment, it, it seems. So how do you think our public health systems in the CDC in particular are different today? And can they be trusted? I think that's what a lot of people are wondering when it comes uh, or are concerned about. When it comes to the vaccine, people are, are thinking, especially those with younger children. I have a, an 11-year-old daughter mm -hmm. who has not yet been vaccinated, but when her time comes, I and all, you know, a whole new group of parents are going to go through the, the process of making a decision. So how do you feel about that, Dr. Satcher? 
can we trust can we trust our public health services today and have trust in this vaccine? Well, I think our public health system is different today than than it has been in the past. It's different in terms of how we oversee it. A lot of people say to me, who is this committee that's going to approve the vaccine? Who is the committee at the CDC that's going to say children can get this vaccine? And uh, understanding who those people are, they are people like, like you and I in the sense that they've been involved, but they also have children. You know, they live in communities where they are children. Association of Infectious Disease Professionals have to make the final decision about whether a vaccine is ready, whether children should should be given a vaccine. And these are people, again, who have children who have worked with the vaccine. So when I go out and speak and people talk about the vaccine, I, I have to let them know, well, if you don't trust the vaccine, you know, you probably don't trust me because I was involved in developing the vaccine. You know, we, we had meetings on a regular basis to look at how things were going. So we're not saying that anything or anybody is perfect, but we're saying the strategy that we now have for developing vaccines much improved just since I was director of the CDC. I mean, uh, when I became director of the CDC, we were dealing with things like childhood immunization, that was the issue. We didn't have any major immunizations at that time that compared with measles, mumps, and rubella for children. So those uh, tetanus, et cetera. We had vaccines, uh, but children were first and foremost in line for most of those vaccines. Right, yeah. I, I tell people about an experience, and I'll be brief with this, that uh, we decided back in the mid-90s, that we were going to eradicate polio. We had already eradicated smallpox, uh, I think, in 1978, and decided that, you know, since we had the vaccine, and vaccines are important, that we should move on and eradicate polio. And as you know, the word eradicate implies that the disease no longer exists anywhere. It's not like eliminate. If there's no longer polio in the United States, we have eliminated it in the United States. But if we have removed it from the world, then we have eradicated it. So we made a commitment to see if we could not eradicate polio. We have still not succeeded, but I think we're getting closer all the time because, but the things that they have in common is that they both have excellent vaccines. It was because of vaccines that we were able to eradicate smallpox. Because of vaccines that India has eliminated polio from its environment, and that Africa last year declared that it had eliminated polio from all the whole continent of Africa. And uh, in fact, there are only two or three countries in the world that still have polio. And those are like Afghanistan, Pakistan, and no longer Nigeria, I should say. So it can be done. It can yes. be done. Yeah, that's, that's great. And that's why we. We should trust vaccines because over and over again, we have seen the success of vaccine in controlling infectious disease. Yeah, there's so many issues we could talk about. I'd like to bring up one more that is a current day issue and that I've seen you be outspoken about in recent weeks, and that's around menthol cigarettes. So why is that issue important to you? You know, the banning of the banning of those cigarettes? Well, I think uh, 
all evidence would suggest that the menthol flavor in cigarettes tend to enhance addiction. That's something about it. Uh, and that, that's probably more true for African-Americans than for others, that uh, the menthol flavor is not just the joy of smoking, but generally enhances uh, addiction. And so we have been working over the last several years now to get rid of menthol cigarettes because of what they do in terms of addiction. And I think that's important. Addiction is really critical when it comes to smoking. When it comes to lung cancer related to smoking, when it comes to all of the other kinds of cancer that we see around smoking, basic to all of them is the fact that you can become addicted to this long-term killing disease of cancer of the lungs, for example. But almost every organ in the body it can be impacted negatively by smoking. And I know that in, in some of what you've written and said about this issue, you've identified racial issues, you know, that are an important part of this for you. So can you tell me a little bit about that? And I, I know from reading your book, Dr. Satcher, your involvement as you were younger as a student in a nonviolent protest movement. I just uh, wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and how you connect these issues, like the cigarette ban that we've been talking about to the issues that, as you were a younger person, you, you fought for or fought against? Well, yeah, I'll be happy to. I, I think, going back to the first point you made, it's really important to point out that African Americans, we know, for example, are more likely to become addicted to menthol cigarettes. We don't know exactly all of the reasons why that that's true, what it is about menthol that makes them more addictive than other flavors, especially for African-Americans. So we have seen a difference in terms of the risk of people becoming addicted to smoking when menthol is involved. Menthol specifically is more addictive for African-Americans. We don't know all of the reasons that it is. So um, we have to be concerned about addiction because without addiction, of course, we would have saved millions of lives long ago. And uh, to the extent that we are now able to to deal with um, addiction, we're seeing a decline in smoking. When the uh, Surgeon General's report on smoking and health came out in 1964, it was released by Dr. Luther Terry. Almost half of the American people were smokers. And, uh, and today, of course, it's less than... Just, it's just over 10% of the American people are smokers. Millions of lives have been saved because people either quit smoking or decided not to begin. So the, the difference has been dramatic, and we've got to keep moving in that direction. When I did the report on smoking and health in minorities, I think it was released in 2000, 2001, the situation was quite different than it is today in terms of numbers of people who smoke and who become addicted and who die. We've made progress, but we've got to continue to move in the right direction. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Sadly, uh, we're getting toward the end of our time here, but I do have one last question for your set of questions. And so this will be our final topic, Dr. Satcher. So as you look back on your life and your life's experiences, the good and the bad, 
and thinking about a two-year-old today who has a medical issue that is akin to whooping cough, how would you hope that their experience would be similar and different from yours? Well, first, I would hope that they would have parents who would be as aggressive and caring as my parents were. As I think you know, neither of my parents finished elementary school. And yet, when it came to the health of their children, they were aggressive. And uh, they had very deep commitments, uh, religious commitments, and otherwise they, they fought hard. So when Dr. Jackson said that I was not going to live, I mean, they could have decided that, you know, it's time to give it up. They never did. They fought until it was clear that I had survived uh, that experience. Uh, and that was generally their attitude throughout our lives in terms of our education, being committed to our graduating high school and going to college, even though neither one of them finished elementary school. They could have easily said, well, you know, uh, we've done okay. Our children don't have to go to college, but the attitude all along was that we were going to do better than they did. And so I have great memories of them and their commitment. I was in Anniston, Alabama, I think, you know, last week, I believe it was, speaking at a program in which we've set up a scholarship in my mother's name, the Anasatcha Memorial Scholarship. And every year, they try to give scholarships to students finishing high school and hopefully going to college. We're trying to encourage them to finish high school, to go to college, but we're trying to encourage them to take education seriously. We have a, at the same church, we have a library, my dad's name. Now, this is interesting because my dad, Wilma Satcher, actually never finished the first grade. And yet, with the help of my mom, he learned how to read and uh, somehow became superintendent of Sunday school where he served for 25 years. So when I was growing up, we had to read our Sunday school lesson. We had to demonstrate that we had read it and that we understood what it was saying. They took education seriously, even though they didn't have it for themselves. Yeah. So this is a perfect way to end it, Dr. Satcher. What would be your greatest wish for today's children and youth? Well, number one, that they would be a priority for all of us. They would be a priority when it comes to things like safety and health behavior, including foods, that we would we would always think of how to protect our children. And I think if we did that, of course, I think generally the health of our society would be better. And uh, decisions that we make about things like food and physical activity, for example, to think of children living in a community where there's no safe place to be physically active is something that I think um, none of us should be comfortable with that we ought to make sure that every child has access to a safe place to play, to be physically active, and that every child realize that there are rewards that come from expanding your mind, studying, learning. So I think we can do that. I think uh, violence is a major concern, and that was actually what I talked about in Anderson last week. When kids uh, have nothing to do, no safe places to play, 
they're much more likely to get involved in violent behavior. So we can't afford to have any communities where kids don't have playgrounds to play. And so we've got to continue to work to make sure that every child has access to safe places to be physically active. And that over time, relationships are more positive than negative. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Satcher, for your time today. Thank you so much for all that you have done for Action for Healthy Kids in uh, founding our organization and for all that you do for Americans when it comes to the health of of people in our country. It's really just been a a pleasure to speak with you today. Well, thank you, Rob. As you well know, I've enjoyed working with you, not just today, but over the years. And I appreciate the work that you've done and not just keeping Action for Healthy Kids going, but enhancing it at every opportunity. So thank you also. That is all the time we have today. I want to say a big thank you to Dr. David Satcher for taking the time to join us and discuss the struggles children are facing in the world today. Each of us, whether we're parents and caregivers, school stakeholders, or caring community members, has an important role to play in the lives of our kids. You can find more information by visiting our website at actionforhealthykids.org or checking us out on Instagram and Twitter. Be sure to listen for our next episode And don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. I'm Rob Besegli, and thanks for listening to Kids Can from Action for Healthy Kids. 